Hello everyone, and welcome to the second episode of Perfect Shadows. So today we're going to stay in the same region, but fast forward about 500 years after Sargon the Great, to cover someone who I'm sure most people have at least heard of once or twice in grade school, Hammurabi of Babylon. Sargon's Akkadian Empire lasted for close to two centuries after his death before collapsing due to invasions by the Gutians and the Sumerians. So we open this tale with Mesopotamia fractured once more into numerous powerful city-states. Now, unlike Sargon, Hammurabi was born into a royal family. Although we don't know about the mother, his father was a ruling king named Sin Mubayit. His father, the first to declare himself king of Babylon, reigned for almost 20 years before abdicating in favor of Hammurabi. Ascending to power in 1792 BCE, Hammurabi was immediately thrust into a world full of numerous city-states vying for fertile lands. This isn't to say that Hammurabi inherited a state of constant warfare. The first few years proved to be rather calm, allowing him to create alliances with neighboring rulers, centralize his government's power, and focus on public works, such as building irrigation canals for increased food production and expanding both city walls and temples. Almost a decade later, however, aggressive northeastern neighbors began to make moves which could no longer be ignored by Babylon, kicking off a series of campaigns that would make him the first king to rule over all of Mesopotamia since our good friend Sargon the Great. Now as a side note, I'm going to sort of give you the condensed crib notes version of Hammurabi's quest for expansion, as there are numerous players in each story, while interesting in and of themselves, are full of kings, armies, alliances, double crosses, and politics. These all actually happen to be precisely the kind of things I'd like to read about and discuss, but as a whole, they would take entirely too long for a single episode on Hammurabi. For those of you who would like to read up on all the intrigue, I suggest reading Mark van de Meerup's King Hammurabi of Babylon, a biography, as he does a great job devoting entire chapters to each separate conflict. With all that said, let's get back to the story. Elam lay to the east of Babylon, along the Tigris River, and stretched up into the Zagros Mountains of modern-day Iran. The Elamites, eyeing further expansion into Mesopotamia, attempted to play off local rivalries in the hope of pitting Babylon and Larsa against each other, only to have Hammurabi discover the plot join forces with Larsa, albeit a bit half-assedly on their part, and destroy the Elamites. Finding Larsa's lack of enthusiasm disturbing, Hammurabi turned around and annexed their lands. So now we have Babylon's southern territory secure, which of course means the north is beginning to have delusions of grandeur, with kings brewing unrest throughout the region. Hammurabi takes his armies north to sack Eshnuna, before further breakdowns in relations cause him to sack Mari, and establish control along the various smaller city-states of northern Mesopotamia. Along the way, there are tales of his armies diverting rivers to cause cities to capitulate, something which would greatly alter the composition of the land for millennia to come. Within a short number of years, Hammurabi had unified Mesopotamia in much the same manner as Sargon the Great had. Although Hammurabi met with numerous triumphs on the battlefield, he now turned his eye towards something he was equally successful at, governance. This is a trait which can certainly make or break the legacy of a ruler. Conquest can win an empire, but proper administration is what keeps it all together. This passage by Vandemirup describes it perfectly. Quote, Hammurabi's management style was very direct, and the letters indicate that anyone could turn to him when facing a problem. He either rendered a verdict and directed his officials to carry out his orders, or he asked them to investigate the matter further. Nothing seems to have been too trivial for his attention. He asked about small lots of land, single servants, and so on. Some scholars have seen this as a sign that he was a petty ruler, but that is a mistaken judgment. Hammurabi properly fulfilled his functions as a king. 
He was there for his people and all were allowed to approach him. This created a personal bond between the king and his people. They saw that he took care of them and that he performed his role as a good shepherd. Hammurabi focuses on his persona as a just king, one who protects his people, especially the weak among them, from injustice and abuse by the powerful. End quote. Hammurabi was not the sort of king who ruled purely by decree from high above on his mountain. He certainly took a keen interest in the day-to-day lives of his subjects, the common people, which leads us to the thing most modern-day people associate with this king of Babylon, the famous Code of Hammurabi. This codification of laws covered all aspects of criminal and civil law, including embezzlement, murder, labor hiring, slaves, loans, divorces, and many other matters. It would serve as the most dominant and complete set of laws until the advent of the ancient Greeks centuries later. The sentences themselves were a mix of progressive and harsh, depending on the severity of the crime. It is from these laws that the Bible's famous eye-for-an-eye punishment originates from. Law number 196 states, quote, If a man destroys the eye of another man, they shall destroy his eye. If one breaks a man's bone, they shall break his bone. If one destroys the eye of a free man or breaks the bone of a free man, he shall pay one gold mina. If one destroys the eye of a man's slave or breaks a bone of a man's slave, he shall pay one half his price. End quote. Also evident in this passage are differing punishments according to the social status of those involved. And while this passage does not explicitly state it, the genders of the participants were also taken into account. Hands could be cut off for theft and other offenses, false accusations could be met with death, and fines or restitution could be ordered for damaged property. On the other hand, progressive laws offered some protections and guarantees. These included a minimum wage for different occupations or protection from creditors if the debtor was unable to pay due to extenuating circumstances, such as natural disasters befalling his crops. When one pictures the Code of Hammurabi, it is almost certainly the stella which is now on display in the Louvre. The stone slab, measuring close to eight feet tall, served, according to Van de Meerup, as a monument to the power of justice and law to both the people and future kings. He writes, quote, Someone who felt wronged could thus find solace in the monument, because it showed that justice would prevail in the end. Hammurabi guaranteed that his country was correctly ruled. He protected the weak from abuse by the powerful, he sheltered the widow and the waif, and his stella announced that to all. The second audience of the stella was explicitly acknowledged as the future king. To him, Hammurabi says, Forever in the future may a king who rules this land see the words of justice I wrote on my stella. He is not to change or remove them, but use them as a guide for his own rule. End quote. On the surface, the stella certainly seems to simply lay out the law of the land for both current and future inhabitants. However, Sarah Melville, among other scholars, argues that, quote, after s- much study of the collection, along with its prologue and epilogue, most scholars now agree that the code was created to justify and legitimize Hammurabi's reign. Simply put, it is political propaganda. Its target audience was the gods and the ruling elite, and its provisions were meant to show the wisdom, fairness, and equity of the king. End quote. This argument does hold some weight. The stella on display in the Louvre is not the only form in which the code of law exists. There are numerous tablets that have been recovered, and scholars believe that other stelae would have been prominently displayed in numerous of the cities that Hammurabi conquered. These copies would certainly have served as both reprints of the codified laws and testaments to future generations of the impartiality of a just king. At about the age of 60, Hammurabi died from an illness in 1750 BCE. In much the same way Sargon the Great did with the Akkadians, 
Hammurabi was able to unify Mesopotamia, ushering in a new age of Babylonian influence in the region, which would last for about two centuries. His true legacy, however, survived in the form of his code of laws, which would prove to be influential for millennia. I'd like to leave you here with a passage from the actual code's epilogue, written in what seems to be the words of the very king himself. A righteous law and pious statute did he teach the land. Hammurabi, the protecting king, am I. The great gods have called me. I am the salvation-bearing shepherd whose staff is straight, the good shadow that is spread over my city. On my breast I cherish the inhabitants of the land of Sumer and Akkad. In my shelter I have let them repose in peace. In my deep wisdom have I enclosed them. The king who rules among the kings of the cities am I. My words are well considered. There is no wisdom like unto mine. By the command of Shamash, the great judge of heaven and earth, let righteousness go forth in the land. By the order of Marduk, my lord, let no destruction befall my monument. Let my name be ever repeated. Let the oppressed, who has a case at law, come and stand before this, my image, as king of righteousness. Let him read the inscription and understand my precious words. The inscription will explain his case to him. He will find out what is just, and his heart will be glad, so that he will say, Hammurabi is a ruler who is as a father to his subjects, who holds the words of Marduk in reverence, who has achieved conquest for Marduk over the north and south, who rejoices the heart of Marduk, his lord, who has bestowed benefits forever and ever on his subjects, and has established order in the land. Thank you very much for tuning in this week. As always, please check out Instagram at Perfect Shadows Podcast to see some alternate cover art. And also please stop by our website at www.perfectshadowspodcast.com in case you want to take a look at the work cited in this episode. Next week, we'll be staying relatively close to the region and covering Queen Hatshepsut of ancient Egypt. See you then. Thank you.